The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening or early afternoon, depending on your time zone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another installment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today we're going to look at an issue that has become increasingly more significant and more influential for archaeologists generally because we are talking about the general theme of communicating with the general public. In previous eras, archaeologists made their living by simply doing research and publishing about it and encouraging more people to do the same sort of thing. The pedagogy of archaeology has always moved in that direction. And I think with the growth of a cultural resource management and public archaeology, as well as the decline of scientific funding, for, by institutions and federal and governments for archaeology, the need for communicating not just among the peer group, but for the general public has become increasingly more important and will continue to, to grow in that direction. And unfortunately, and I can say this having been around the block quite a bit, uh, our lack of communicators and our inability to cultivate uh, future generations of people who can communicate with the general public about archaeology is becoming a major, major crisis for our profession. Um, I am honored today to have with us Dr. Brian Fagan, who is probably the Carl Sagan, for lack of a better analogy, of archaeologists. He is a magnificent communicator, and he writes for the general public, and I think the purpose of this uh, session in this interview is to uh, speak to Dr. Fagan about how he got into it and how he cultivated this incredible set of skills that allows him to communicate to the general public without effectively um, making people fall asleep and getting them very stimulated and curious. Dr. Fagan, by way of background, is an archaeologist, historian, and a writer. He received his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. degrees at Pembroke College, Cambridge, in archaeology and anthropology. 
by way of chronology from 1959 through 1965, he was the keeper of prehistory at the Livingston Museum in Zambia, where he was involved in fieldwork on multidisciplinary African history and in monument conservation. In 1966, Dr. Fagan moved to the United States and became professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He specializes, as we indicated before, in commuting, communicating archaeology to the general audience and to the general public through lecturing, writing, and a variety of other media. His many books include a three-volume series for the National Geographic Society, including the best-selling Adventure of Archaeology, and his other works include The Rape of the Nile, The Great Warming, Climate Change, and The Rise and Fall of Civilization, and Cro-Magnon, How the Ice Age gave birth to the first modern humans and numerous other publications, volumes, as well as articles. And he has lectured extensively to both the academic community and to the greater public. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Fagan. Thank you for coming here. Oh, it's a great privilege to be with you, Joe, and I look forward to the next hour. Good, great. I would like to begin by asking you, I think, the question that would be on most people's minds, which is, how did you get into writing about archaeology and the past for the general public? Well, a number of reasons. One is, I was brought up around books. Oddly enough, my father was a publisher in London, uh, and a serious academic publisher mainly, and that was one thread in my life. But more important than that, uh, for the first six years of my career, I was a museum keeper in the National Museum of Zambia, which is now in Livingston in Central Africa, seven miles from the Victoria Falls. And my brief was to study the history of the current inhabitants of what is now Zambia, because nothing was known about this, and the history book started with the missionary explorer David Livingston in 1855, and as everyone knows, human history goes back way before that. So from the beginning, I was told flatly that one of my jobs was to educate people, and in a situation where, A, we didn't know anything about the archaeology at all, and B, there was nothing in the university or school books, uh, one of my jobs was to communicate this to the public because <clears throat> we ran on a shoestring on literally no money. And that was always, I started writing newspaper articles. Those caused quite a lot of interest because they were unusual. And then I got asked to edit for Oxford University Press, actually, in Nairobi, a short history of Zambia, which became a standard work at the University of Zambia for many years. It's now obviously out of date. And at that point, I, after seven years in Africa, also in East Africa, I left. And I was very burnt out on fieldwork. I'd been doing fieldwork nine months a year under what can be described as pretty tough conditions. And I also discovered that I was a very, very good second-rate excavator and researcher. I simply didn't have the kind of mind that goes with detail or the patience to be the sort of archaeologist that I saw coming with very fine gain research. And I was really seriously thinking of 
getting out of archaeology altogether. When in London, when on leave, I had lunch with a very famous British archaeologist, Sir Mortimer Wheeler, who was a legendary excavator and a very interesting chap, actually. And uh, he strongly urged me to start writing about archaeology for the general public because nobody else was doing it, and he liked the way I write. So there we are. And I came over to America and was asked when I came to Santa Barbara to teach the introductory archaeology course to 300 students. And there were no textbooks, none. So, and by one of those chances in life that change your life, an editor from Little Brown in Boston, who at that time were a big textbook publisher, walked into my office and, to cut a long story short, persuaded me to write a book on basically how archaeology works, which came out in 1972, and believe it or not, Joe, is going into a 13th edition next year. Yes, it's a long time. So I then did a a couple of textbooks. And from there, I was asked by Archaeology Magazine in New York to write an article about a famous tomb robber from the early 19th century called Giovanni Belzoni, who was Mm -hmm. a really fascinating person. He was a circus strongman who became... Uh, a, a collector of antiquities in Egypt, and his his adventures were absolutely magnificent. I mean, they make Indiana Jones look pretty harmless. <laughs> and I wrote an article on him for archaeology. And in those days, there wasn't the gross saturation of books that there is now. And Charles Scribner's in New York asked me to write a book on Belzoni, but I pointed out there was already an excellent biography and, and casually said, what about a history of tomb robbing and early Egyptology? And they sent me a contract by return post. And I wrote the book, which is now called The Rape of the Nile. That was their title. And three editions later, it came out in 75. It's still in print and was reviewed in Time magazine. And it was clear then that I had a, a serious chance to really write some interesting archaeology for the public. So that's how it all began. Rather long story, but that's how it happened. But but basically, you just moved in this direction kind of naturally. You were not sort of, well, I, I guess you, you weren't sort of led into the other direction, although I would think that having been influenced by Wheeler, who, as a lot of people know, was a larger-than-life character, that must have had a very major effect on you. He was an incredible character. He was really uh, an amazing man. He was very difficult. He either loved you or he hated you. For some reason, he loved me. We, we, we got on. And I had actually, at the lunch, told him, look, I'm going to give up archaeology and go in the family business. My father wanted me to go in the business. And I, I, he said, why? And I said, well, I think I'm a very good second-rate field worker. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, that's very honest. And then he spent an hour persuading me to do what I did. So I kind of moved over. And in fact, once I got my feet wet on it, I realized that I had a, uh, at least some ability at it. And it was worth training myself, and I did. And you really didn't have any guidelines for doing it, because at the time, this was a really pioneering venue. I mean, people were getting more academic, and yet you saw the writing on the wall and the need to communicate to the broader public, and you just basically blazed a trail. You didn't have a lot of models for doing this kind of work, did you? No, no. There were some people in England who wrote books for the public, uh, Jaquetta Hawkes, the famous German C.W. Serum, who wrote God's Graves and Scholars. But really... Um, it was kind of wide open, and my mind is the sort of mind that likes big issues. And I was teaching introductory students, 
and this made you look at the wide issues. And I found very specialized scholarship of any sort very, very stultifying. It can be history, it can be nuclear physics, it can be archaeology. And almost deliberately, I took my career in an absolutely opposite direction to everyone else, which in some circles did not make me friends, given the fact that I had was one of the founders of multidisciplinary African history and was considered to be someone who should would go a long way in it. And people couldn't understand why I did it. The reason I did it was that it was far more interesting than being a specialist. But did you find any any aversion on the part of except of, of well-known scholars or professionals who who went along the traditional route, just being researchers? Did they express any hostility or any kind of opposition to what you were doing that you were not really doing, as as they would call, you know, scholarship sensu stricto, but you actually wanted to be a communicator? Was there any hostility at the time to that? It's been or, a long, long story. Uh, basically, I was functioning at the University of California in a university which functions on the great God research and publish or perish. Right. And I was very lucky because a lot of the really good archaeologists, once they talked to me and realized I wasn't just being a journalist and that I was deadly serious, the great thing I had was impeccable research credentials. And I had published everything I had dug. And you couldn't argue with whether I was a working archaeologist. That was a huge help. And I said, so well, you had to establish your credentials, basically. Oh, very much so. And okay. I think one of the most important things, if you want to communicate any scientific field, isn't to be a science journalist. Anyone can do that. It's to be a serious researcher whose perspective is the broad view. Because and that's right. Today, okay. with a multidisciplinary world we live in, this is terribly important. An awful lot of my writing in recent years, Joe, really hasn't involved a huge amount of archaeology at all. It's all sorts of stuff. Climate, water, history, everything. And that's such fun because I'm telling stories, which is what archaeology does. And we will be back and discuss this, uh, the evolution of Brian Fagan's career and his impact on the profession after these words. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to a new view of life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life, which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A new view of life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back and interviewing uh, the almost legendary Dr. Brian Fagan, who developed, has developed a unique niche and a reputation as archaeologists, uh, archaeology's communicator to the public, if you will. And over the break, uh, Brian was telling me that it's important to distinguish between people who are professional writers and academics and academics clearly overwhelm the uh, the majority of of archaeological uh publications and the variety of archaeological niches and and uh places in the profession. Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about the difference between writing for the public and and the traditional academic scholar who puts out effectively articles for the 20 or 30 people who have interests in his own particular field? There's a huge difference, and actually um, it has some interesting issues in terms of training people to do it. Um, there are very few academics who have transcended the two. Javad Diamond is one, of course. And the biggest issue is the raising funding. I have to raise all my funding either through lecturing or through the commercial sector. My research is totally funded without grants because people do not give grants, incredible, let me seem, to communicate to the public, which I find extraordinary, but they don't. And so I have to have a foot in the commercial world, which means whenever I propose a book to my agent, the first question the publisher is, is this marketable? Will it sell? Because the publisher obviously wants to make a profit and get the advance money he pays back. That's one side. The second side is, can I write and deliver on time? And the only way, in my humble opinion, to learn how to write is to bloody well do it. And, um, it's interesting because some years ago I wrote a little paperback for Left Coast Press out in California called Writing Archaeology, which was about this. And it seemed very interesting. I've had a lot of emails from people saying, that's how you do it. And the basic litany is just sit down and write, because the only one you're going to learn how to write isn't taking classes. It's learning how to tell stories and telling them intelligently. For example, I had a challenge some years ago to write a chapter in a book on archaeology of California about 
7,500 years when nothing happened. The only archaeological traces literally are scatters of stone tools and grinding stones. <laughs> you know grinding stones. There's not much you can say much about it. Much you can say about it, sure. Not you say, but I have, once a week, have lunch with a, a writer-editor friend of mine, and we batted this around, and he said, ah, oh, but what about sound? And then suddenly I remembered that many years ago in Africa I'd eaten a meal made by somebody who'd used a grinder like this, and I remembered the sound of bingo. It worked. And the chapter started with the sound. And this is the sort of thing you have to do. You have to step out of the academic mode. The final thing, the difference is, academics deal with detail. They deal <coughs> with little-known peace treaties, with statistics on slavery, with counts of artifacts, with obscure information on insects or animal bones, which is deeply fascinating. But how much of that can you use to tell a story in a book for the general public, which inevitably is going to be a very broad subject, like, for the sake of argument, the ancient Maya? The answer is very little. One of the arts of this game is knowing what to leave out without sort of missing something and having the academics pile on you because you don't understand, quote-unquote, or that it's but, too simple. It's very difficult. But you really had to navigate your own terrain here. I mean, there was no pathway. Oh, yeah. There was no accepted terrain to, terrain to go across, for lack of a better description. So, and especially when you started doing this, because you did this in the 60s, uh, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, and you just sort of said, okay, I am going to do this, and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And then and all of a sudden, you know, you gain some momentum, and then you you start to dictate what you can do. Is that the way it worked? I mean, is no, that how you... I never did what I can do, the publishers do. No, they I do. Mean, okay. Well, one, well, let me give you a little bit of background here. Um, each book one writes about archaeology for the public is different because the way you're going to tell the story is different. If, for example, you take the Cro-Magnons of the late Ice Age, the challenge there is to meld the paintings, the art, a scatter of stone tools into a story with adaptation. If you're dealing with grinding stones, that's a whole other thing. If you're dealing with climate change, it's a whole other variable. Even the style of the book changes. What doesn't change is the necessity of telling a story. And the way you do this is you write a proposal for a publisher suggesting an idea, and you develop a relationship with an editor. And writing the proposal is the hardest part of the whole process, because there you have to kind of advance, think the book, advance, think the story, advance the outline, and convince the publisher the book is going to be viable. And this is very hard. I reckon the average proposal goes through about eight drafts. And there is no guarantee, having had one book published, that you'll have another one published. You're back at square A with everything you do. The thing that matters is the idea. And to and, a, some extent, your track record, but the idea is what matters. And the track record, obviously, is important as well, because then you have a, sort of an entree into that world, and people know who you are, and they know that in, in all likelihood, because uh, you're building on your own reputation, it'll be more marketable. But you're saying your theme has to be relevant, and your theme has to be something marketable. So in that regard, what are you seeing as the main themes for archaeology right now? And especially with this emphasis on relevance, we're starting to get into a situation where... Uh, 
uh, I think even academics are going to have to demonstrate that what they're doing is relevant. And so this how do you approach that? You've put your finger right on it. Um, oddly enough, archaeology is very overpublished. There are dozens of books on ancient Egypt, on the ancient Maya, on the southwest of America, on whatever you like. Fine. They're catering for a small audience that deals and is interested passionately in archaeology. The best publishers in the world in that probably are Thames and Hudson in London, who've been doing archaeology for 50 years. They're damn good, and they have beautiful illustrations. <coughs> uh, National Geographic's done some good stuff, and so on and so forth. But the issues now that sell books and appeal to people are exactly what you say. It's the issues of today. Global warming, sustainability, landscape, environment, water, and so on and so forth. Issues of which archaeology is part of the story, because you cannot look, for example, at the rising sea levels, which are well, looking at the chronicle of the last 10,000 years, which tells you all sorts of things about the present and the future. Uh, or you can't look at uh, fluctuating temperatures without going back and looking at the Little Ice Age and so on. That's what archaeology contributes, its perspectives. And then a final thing, the other thing which archaeology does so well is to tell us how we're different and how we're similar. Cultural diversity. And in many parts of the world, the final relevance, it's the only source of history there is. Tropical Africa before 1890, uh, parts of South America and so on. And this is enormously important because you're, what you're writing isn't archaeology for colleagues. It's archaeology as part of world history, national history, whatever you like. But it's all today multidisciplinary, which is part and and as you do this, I mean, you have the unique ability to draw the public in. How do you go about doing that? How do you present a lecture to a general audience and effectively try to tell them, um, well, you know, we knew about, we've, archaeologists have known about climate change for a really long time because they've looked at the past and they've looked at the relationship between settlements and landscapes and changing climates. How do you engage uh, an audience in that kind of thing? The first thing is you obey certain, and this may seem bizarrely simple, but it's not. You obey some very simple rules, and it's staggering the number of lecturers who don't do this. Number one, never use any notes at all. Two, never put your notes on PowerPoint on the screen. Three, have first-rate pictures and visuals. But four, and most of all, Give your lecture as a story. And what I do, for example, I have a lecture which I give on, um, on water and rainfall and how farmers uh, adapt to an environment where water is irregular, seasonal. And I tell the story, which is early in my career, of living in the middle Zambezi Valley and watching crops fail because the rains didn't come and watching the tension rising in society as they wait to plant and I tell this story and you can hear a mosquito clear its throat a mile away people are just glued to it and at that point I've got the audience in my hand and then I can really start telling the story so it's just that first story that tells and then finally no ums, no ahs, no ers, no buts <laughs> You tell a story, and if you can, Joe, 
get a portable loudspeaker and walk among the audience. Then they don't go to sleep. But but the problem with all of that is that as professional archaeologists and as you go through the system and as you get more specialized, the ability that you have to to transmit a story in that way is diminished because you get so involved in your research in a traditional academic environment. And, you know, as we get our PhDs, that's what we get increasingly involved. And it's like they're almost killing it. They're almost killing that. Uh, Now, wait a minute. Let's make a distinction here, Chief. You're talking about specialist academics. 99% of their communication is either with fellow specialists or with graduate students or with advanced undergraduates. The people you really need to work on are the introductory teachers and the people who have a broader view. And I think it's shameful that in all the graduate programs we've got, There is no formal training in delivery, in lecturing, except in the odd TA program. And it's something that's easy to lose, learn, and practice. And almost one of the loveliest specialized lectures I ever heard was at a conference in London on Roman mortars. I'm sorry there were so many grindstones, but I mean, let's face it, it's a pretty dull subject. And this was a lecture for 20 minutes given by a guy who in his other life is a professional landscaper. And he had us absolutely electrified because his whole life in this teeny area in northeastern England was an area he knew backwards and he kept on finding mortars and he told us stories about how he found them, what they looked like, what they meant. He had beautiful pictures. It was absolutely marvelous because what came ashore was his passion because the other thing I should have said when lecturing is I think one of the most important things is your excitement and passion because one of the golden rules of writing is if you write a book it's no use writing it unless you're excited about it and this is so true and that guy I went up to him afterwards and said that was one of the finest lectures I've ever had and he gave me a grin and said I love this subject That's a willing statement, but that's what you need to do, and you you really need to cultivate it. But 99% of academics just talk to their colleagues, which is one of our problems. That's that's our Mm -hmm. problem. We will get back to our lively interview with Brian Fagan after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. 
Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. I'm back with uh, my special guest, Dr. Brian Fagan, who is known around the world as a popularizer of archaeology and a master communicator of archaeology to general audiences. Uh, Brian, I'd like to know, based on your most recent experiences, what seems to interest the audiences the most? Is it the spectacular finds? Is it the relevance of archaeology to the contemporary world? What What are you seeing now when you speak to the general public about archaeology? Very, this is a very interesting question because uh, I've asked that question myself. As you know, I do lectures with an extraordinarily wide range of audiences, including groups like the National Association of Waterworks Managers. Wow. And I've done a lot of lecturing recently about the history of water. I wrote a book on the subject. And when it comes to question time, you get almost no questions at all about the past. Everything is the present and the future. What are our options to reverse the sinking down of groundwater? How do we combat drought and things like that? It is archaeology as part of how we face the challenges of the present and future, which really interests people. And with talks on climate change, invariably, people say, what are the lessons of the ancient Maya droughts? Or you talk about, uh, I, I remember telling a group in California here, water people, about medieval droughts we know of in the Sierra. Mm-hmm. And they were glued to their seats. They had no idea that this existed. Uh, and they told me to write a history of water, which I did, and then I went back and told them about it, which was wonderful. But yeah, it's the contemporary world that interests people. How will it affect me? And but you draw significantly on the archaeological record. I mean, you, you're oh, yeah. trained as it, and you you draw on it, and uh, you use this as sort of a guideline, I would assume, to to tell people, you know, this is what has happened, and we know this, and this is what we can project based on 
previous uh, adaptations to these kinds of crises, and and I assume that that factors into it as well. It does. What I'm basically writing is serious nonfiction, which right. gives an ancient perspective to modern problems and draws on all sorts of different sources. And actually what is fascinating is that this is, I'm finding having quite a significant impact. Some years ago I wrote a book on uh, the Little Ice Age and the medieval warm period. And I find now that research in climate is coming, changes coming into archaeology with a vengeance, largely because of the advances in climatology. But there's no question that these people have read my stuff and thought, hey, there's an idea. So I kind of feel good that I'm kind of steering the discipline a little bit. Well, I, I was going to say that I, I think one of the one of the most impactful books that you have done is is the one on climate, where you talk about the Little Ice Age, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you know and what the record tells us? Especially, I believe it was the year eighteen fifteen when there was there was no summer. Uh, why don't you discuss that a little bit, if you could? Okay, uh, there is it's very interesting because. There are, two, there are two or three periods in the last 2,000 years which we now know very well from tree rings and ice cores, much better than we did when I wrote those books, actually, which are kind of out of date. And over the last 2,000 years, there have been centuries which have been warmer than usual, one of which was around 1,000 years ago with the so-called medieval warm period. And right. then there was the much more famous Little Ice Age when the River Thames flood, um, flooded, um, froze over, when alpine glaciers advanced and so on, the height of which was in the 17th century. And what was now done, I wrote the story, which actually people very enjoyed, but the one thing that was a gap then, just to give you an idea, this is changing because this is relevant to the question you asked, the big thing now is looking at other sources. And one of the big things that's being looked at is the impact of volcanic eruptions in Iceland on temperatures in Europe, on harvests and so on. And there are actually studies being done of the impact of major volcanic eruptions on medieval harvests. And they are finding connections, which is fascinating. And, of course, the classic example is the one you cited, which is the big volcanic eruption actually in Southeast Asia in 1815, which masked the sun and caused a record cold summer in England and eastern North America, or in Europe and eastern North America, back in 1816, the year afterwards. And that was the year when Percy Bysshe Shelley and Mary Shelley and Lord Byron took a house on Lake Como and where they were bored because it was raining, and Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, which, of course, is now a classic. So right. there's this connection between literature and climate. <laughs> and this is the fun of this. You find these deliciously obscure pieces of academia. And one of the great fun for me is in a seminar or something, and people are talking, I'll say, well, of course, have you thought about this? And I'll produce something obscure, and you can see the academics around the table thinking, my God, how did he know that? I didn't know that, and that's great fun. Brian, I, I'm curious as to how you respond to audiences when they 
address the question of climate change and what archaeology tells us about climate change because you know you're getting we're getting all sorts of wacky explanations about how climate change uh, really affects us does it affect us um you know archaeologists when they go back into their academic mode they'll say well this is the holocene we are in an interglacial period and yet the acceleration of man-made pollutants has so much to do with it how do you address people with your wide knowledge base on what climate change is and what we can anticipate? Well, I must confess I'm absolutely upright from the beginning. It's like with evolution. I just say, let me make it absolutely clear that I have spent many years talking to climatologists and almost all of them accept the fact that humans are having an effect on global temperatures. And I say, I'm not going to get into that debate. I consider it subtle. Uh, almost everybody who doesn't agree with it has some agenda or other. And I quote a couple of examples which are across my desk. And I say there is one thing that is certain. At the present, and at least for the next century, we're living in a warming world. And that's the issue we must grapple with. And that certainly helps steer the debate. Almost invariably, if I get a question opposing what I've said, it's from somebody who has an agenda, and invariably in their question comes out the agenda. So I say, well, the rationale behind your question is, and I say, that's the agenda, and that's shut it up. <laughs> I'm very firm, right. frankly. Mm -hmm. I think you yeah. have to be. You, I think I, you, you have should to see my emails. I get some pretty weird stuff my, no coming down the, the tube, as you might say. Tell us a little more about the history of water, and, and it, was that related to, again, the droughts related to climate change? And, and it's a cycle, obviously, that's related water, climate, and the availability and the changing hydrographic systems. How did you get into Did you get into that because of the climate study? Uh, yes. Well, I, I told you, I gave this lecture on medieval droughts to the mm -hmm. California right. Water Policy Conference. And after I've spoken, someone took me out for a beer and said, look, Brian, we think you should write a history of water. And I said, why? And they said, because I think a lot of they, we think a lot of human behavior has happened before. Because their biggest problem, these are the guys who deliver the water. Their biggest problem is convincing people there is a water shortage. It's like denying you have terminal cancer. Same thing. Right. right. And when I got into this, I studied it over 10,000 years. Not one of my better books, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, there were two big catalysts. The first one was when people began to feel a sense of entitlement, that they expected cheap water day and night constantly. And the people who really got into that were the ancient Greeks and particularly the Romans. But by far the biggest catalyst to our problems, in fact, is the Industrial Revolution, because that was the first time with steam and then fossil fuels that we were able to pump water from aquifers below the earth. And... Combine that with exploding cities and rising populations, and we started sucking out finite aquifers and groundwater before we realized what we're doing. And it's only now that we realize the extent of the crisis. And the crisis in China and in India is really frightening. I mean, this is a serious problem. And there again, archaeology gives you a perspective. Would you say that the Industrial Revolution was the catalyst in the transition from uh, basically natural environments having affected us versus us infecting uh, natural yes. environments? That's where it was. That was the, the tipping point, if you will. There's a huge tipping point there. There's no question. Yeah. Uh, from about 1860, the height of the Industrial Revolution, which is when warming really started. Oh, yeah. Right. Definitely. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the real major question on this, and I, I, we're wandering a little bit out of it, but I want to get your perspective. <laughs> is, it re- is it reversible? I have no idea, Joe. <laughs> okay. uh, the people I That's talk good. to are pessimistic. And a lot of the people I talk to are saying, well, we're going to have to live with whatever happens. But there are a lot of very, very good scientists looking extremely seriously at this, and I'm pretty confident they'll come up with some solutions. The question, is, the question is, will the politicians follow suit? Now, that's another story, because one of the other lessons I've learned from this, and this is true of Sumerian kings, Egyptian pharaohs, everybody, is that people in positions of leadership almost invariably respond on a short-term basis. Why? Because they're either concerned, as our politicians are, with being re-elected, or they're concerned about solving a short-term problem because of public opinion. Right. And these problems are problems which are going to affect our great-grandchildren, when I shall be pushing up daisies, among others. And it's very difficult to get excited about that. No question. We will be back with our final segment of the program with uh, Dr. Brian Fagan after these messages. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSCU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with our last segment with uh, the magnetic Dr. Brian Fagan, who uh, is just uh, telling us a lot about communicating theology to the public and 
and how we can expand basically our domains by uh, looking at broad pictures and trying to express the linkage and develop the linkage between archaeology and the human condition now and into the future. Uh, Brian, what on a somewhat different note, but it really is sort of connected, what are you working on now? I noticed that, that, that you're doing uh, something on seafaring. Uh, is there like a connection, climate, water, seafaring? I mean, is that is that how your no. mind is working? No. What okay. happened was I have this fabulous relationship with Bloomsbury Press, my publishers, and when I published the book on water, we signed a two-book contract. And the second book was a book on ancient seafaring, not galleons and all that, but early stuff. And that came out in uh, July and was really one of my most favorite projects. It was absolutely fascinating. Everything from Aleutian kayaks to uh, dugouts to catamarans to navigating the Pacific. I had a blast with this book, which has actually been particularly popular in England, which is, of course, seafaring. Then, yes. as that project ran down, they gave me a contract to write a book about rising sea levels called The Attacking Ocean, which is coming out in June or July next year, in thirteen. And that book is kind of more of a climate book, looks at ancient and modern. And given Superstorm Sandy and other things, is very relevant and rather frightening. So that was a very interesting book to do, and they're very pleased with it, and that's coming out next year. And what am I going to do after that? I haven't a clue. <laughs> Let me ask you on that note, because this is this is a topic that I've done a little bit of work on, but not, not as enough. Um, your thoughts on uh, human arrivals in North America from the east, the, uh, the, the argument east. that... Yeah, from the the migration from uh, this connection between the Salutrian and the Stone Age, and migrat- migrations coming in um, through the nor- through the northern areas of the eastern coast. A- any thoughts about that? The Salutrian controversy. Well, there are three ways I can answer that. I can give you a long reasoned answer as to why I don't think it was possible, or I can say this is pure horse manure. Or I can say, this is nonsense. Take your choice. <laughs> okay. I, frankly, I'm totally unconvinced by it. Uh, <laughs> I am and, too. Uh, I think it's I think it's it's distractive. I'm amazed that a prominent academic publisher actually published a book on it. They did, and yeah, you know, it was getting uh, University some of California sort of... Press. I mean, forgive me. I like the guys who did it. They're nice people, but I just am not into it at all. Okay. And then I'm not a specialist. No, 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 there's no question. Um, and you have uh, no idea where you're going at this point with uh, with a theme or a, a, a topic. Um, I'm any- in the middle of writing a very complex, unusual proposal, and I daren't say anything about it at this point, I'm afraid, but uh, I, no, no, I, I am working fine. on something. Yeah. How do you get Are your you inspiration? Maybe next time I talk to you, maybe. <laughs> okay. I, mean, no, I can't no, no. say anything. I'm sorry. No. But on mm-hmm. a generically related topic, how do you get your inspiration? What does an idea seize you? Does a topic seize you? Does an event seize you? How, how, do, you, how do you develop a, a sort of a motivation to do I a think particular I think a number of topics come from the publisher. What about a book on so-and-so? And they're really good because they know the markets. And the markets change. Another source uh-huh. of inspiration is my agent. I have a fabulous agent. I was very lucky to get her some years ago. The third one are colleagues. I just talk to a lot of people, and then an idea germinates. The present idea I'm working on, 
basically originated with my agent, and I said to him, nah, nah. And then I had a couple of conversations with other people where the topic suddenly came across my desk, and I thought, ah. Oh. And I looked further, and it's turned out to be a wonderful idea, I think, so we're working on that. <clears throat> I'm sorry I can't say anything. I really can't because it might not No, happen. that's fine. Do you draw any ideas or inspirations from the audiences that you talk to, the general public, really, academic? No, no, except no. for the California Water Policy Conference, but that was unusual. No, not normally, no. They're mostly there to, to learn. Occasionally you get a, a question asked where it stops you in your tracks, but uh, not, not normally, no. What would you say at this point are the major challenges in writing about archaeology? I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier. How do you, how do you, how do you gauge the readiness, let's say, of the audience and its ability to consume the topic and the presentation that you, that you're writing about? Because you have a very fluid way of, of, of expressing yourself, but you have to also be attuned to the public and, and to what they can absorb and how they absorb it. And you clearly have done that in a way that nobody else does because we don't have a lot of people who do that. How do you, feel, how do you, how do you get that gauge? What incredibly complex questions you ask. Um, well, it's really difficult in all seriousness. Um, I would say 90% of it is instinct. It's no use assuming that everybody is interested in the archaeology of North America or everybody is interested in archaeology. That's nonsense. They aren't. Right. Most people couldn't care a damn about it. Um, but if you look at um, a topic like, say, climate change, a lot of people are interested in it. And people love hearing, for example, about ancient disasters. Right. Uh, like uh, a storm that wiped out a farm in Scotland or the flooding of the North Sea, or shipwreck. People love that stuff. And if there's a sense of adventure, and you can titillate people's curiosity, that's a lot of it. But above all, you're not writing about artifacts. You're writing about people who were right. born, grew up, died, had children, got married, fell in love, negotiated, who had ideas. And the moment you move away from children, from people and their ideas, you're dead. It's storytelling. We're doing the same as the old shaman used to do around the campfire in the final analysis. And it's about trying to weave that into a coherent presentation. Into a story and into a story which tells us something or guides our thinking about the world we live in. That's all. It sounds very simple. Down to the most basic thing. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. Um, where do you see archaeology in the future? Where do you see our profession? How do you see it? Uh, how do you see I it? I hate move? to be depressing. I think unless we change its direction and make it much more multidisciplinary, I think it's going to get smaller. I think the problem of destruction of sites is assuming rather terrifying proportions. I think. We've got to get away from the notion that, oh, I'll go to Europe for the summer and dig again at X site, and then you come back and you never publish it. Um, That's disgraceful. I think we really have to live up to the responsibility that we are stewards of the past. And we've got to get very involved with heritage and tourism and things we haven't really thought about. They're beginning to think about it now, but we've got to mainstream these things as intellectually very respectable. I think, Brian, on that note, 
Uh, I would like to have you back because I do think that one of the major issues that archaeologists are going to have to face is the necessity for heritage tourism and preservation, and that will be the wave of the future, I think, and that is uh, that is how we're going to fund ourselves with and relevance you think about and stakeholders. Tourism. I mean, different stakeholders in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on, on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. It's been a fascinating hour that passed just a bit too quickly, but we will get Brian Fagan back if, if, if he can uh, find time in his schedule, which is, I know, very busy. But, Brian, thank you so much for participating in this uh, interview, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again. Joe, it was fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And on that note, we will see you next week at the same time. And everybody have a wonderful evening or a late afternoon if you're out in the West Coast or in other parts of the world. Thank you so much and good night. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.